she started crying and she said, it's not that you're gay. I really love you. It's that the world is so cruel to gay people. I'm so scared for you. I remember thinking, am I gonna lose my friends and my family as well? You know when you're dating someone and it's like, I feel like I'm a fetish. I don't know if you're into me or, or you're into this fetish. And then you see that they have a pattern and then it's like, <gasps> Every black person understands that in our bones. We know when someone is looking at us as if they are going to eat us. Yeah. That is how black people are looked at. Things to eat, to grab, to hold, to dominate, to fuck. Welcome to Stereotype, where we crush stereotypes one episode at a time. I'm your host, DJ Crystal Lake, and if you have not done so already, please subscribe and leave a rating and review on Apple Music. Doing that tells the algorithm to boost this episode for the people to see. It's the best way to support this channel, and it would mean so much to me. Today we're talking about how it's possible to be black, queer, and proud, and what that can look like with my special guest, Josh Rivers, who is the creator of the award-winning Busy Being Black podcast, and a powerful voice for black and queer people all around the world. We're gonna talk about the struggles we face and also the joys of loving ourselves as black and queer people. Let's get into it. How are you today, Josh? Crystal, I'm so glad to be here. I just have such a deep and abiding appreciation for the people in the world who believe in something enough and believe in their voices enough to launch a podcast or write or write poetry or just to put themselves out in the world in a way that other people can encounter. I'm really grateful to you for the work that you do. I ask my guests on every episode, how's your heart? So I'll respond by saying, my heart feels very good today. I'm going through this personal and professional evolution at the minute. We sometimes have to go on a journey away from ourselves in order to come back. And so I feel like I'm coming into myself, coming back to myself with all this earned knowledge, with all this life experience, and I'm I'm putting it to bear. I'm using it in, in the moment. This show relaunching in October, I just feel very excited. There's a vitality I'm feeling at the minute, which is really nice. That is so amazing. And I love just even you saying like, how's your heart? Because there's times when, you know, we could be really doing bad and just being so like open and honest and then also just checking in with yourself is so important. And with each other, right? Like I think the point of busy being black, there's a beautiful phrase in Irish. It translates to, you're the place I stand on the day when my feet are sore. Mm. Right? I get goosebumps just thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and I thought, I want to do that with Busy Being Black. I want to create the place where people come when they feel sore, when they feel a bit tired. And they know that it's going to be a soft place for yeah. them to land. So that question, how's your heart, is because I genuinely want to know. How is your heart? And you also need to know that your, your heart doesn't have to be brimming and full of vitality. You could come to me sad. You could come to me angry. You could come to me confused, despondent. And I would hold you in that space. And I would meet you where you are. And so that question means a lot to me because I need people to know that I'll hold them. Oh, that is beautiful. <laughs> have you ever struggled with loving yourself as a black person? I have definitely struggled over the years not loving myself as a black person, I think I would describe it more as understanding my place within blackness. Mm. One of my earliest encounters with race in a really definitive way 
was when I was about 12 and or 13 and I was being bullied by these black guys at school and I didn't understand what was going on, right? I've grown up around black people my entire life. I had never been bullied by black people before. And I went home to my dad, who's black American. My mom's white British. And I was like, this is what's going on. I don't understand it. They keep making references to the lightness of my skin. And my dad literally grabbed my arm and turned it over and pointed at my veins. And he said, you can see your veins, you're a house Negro. And that was literally the first time and my dad and I spoke about race, right? Like then started this discomfort I felt um, within my own blackness, never mind like within the black community which was at odds with my upbringing, right? Like, yeah. I have always been surrounded by black people. Like, it's, it's all I've known is, is, is blackness, black culture. You know, my grandfather and his church and spending four hours on Sunday listening to him preach. Like, my grandmother moisturizing me like ashiness was an affront to God. Like, you know, like, the things you say and you don't say and the ways you move and the music you listen to and the history that you know and understand. And that's all I knew. But... Somehow, in middle school, I was, I had to begin to reckon with, or I was forced to reckon with, something within blackness mm-hmm. that was historically important and that was bearing, that was having an impact on my life in the, in the present. And of course, at 12, I didn't have the language for that. I didn't know where to begin to look for that. And so I ran away from blackness. I thought, well, I don't want to be implicated in this. I don't want to, I'm not going to play this game. And so that also begun kind of what I call a descent into whiteness, which I've written about before. I used to struggle with colorism in a way. I remember I was like ashamed of being dark skinned at one point. And I remember when I was in school, when I was like young and stuff, there was like team light skin versus team dark skin. And I'd be like, oh, the dark girls are always the ones getting clowned on. Or you would be called things like, African booty scratcher and all this stuff and I was like oh this is really embarrassing I wish that I was lighter I think around those times things like cake soap and then like lightening your skin was also a thing I was just like damn my my life would be easier if I was like not even just like dark skin but if I was white and then I was just like I don't know if I like myself. I don't know if I'm ugly. I don't know if I, I I don't like my flat nose. I don't like my hair and all this stuff. So for a time, like even though I don't like to admit it, I was ashamed of being black and it it kind of took history and kind of learning my culture and seeing other black people be beautiful and loving themselves to make me love myself. I think that's so fascinating. And I'm sorry, right? Like I'm, I find it fascinating and I'm sorry that yeah. that was your experience and that people made you feel that way and that Thanks. and I just want to say I understand right I don't think that I ever doubted that blackness was beautiful or and I, I'm, I'm speaking as a light-skinned mixed black person right so <laughs> my my understanding of my own blackness has been different to yours it's been different to my dark-skinned cousins like it's always been different so I speak I, I acknowledge I'm speaking from that position my issue has always been my title to it, mm. right? Can I, do I have any right to call myself black, right? Do I have any right to love myself in this space and to believe with all my heart that this is my culture, right? right. And that was the confusion for me, was that like, 
it's all I know, but people are telling me that I don't belong here. And, and so I left, right? Like, so, so I ran away. And that was so supremely damaging for me. And it's taken me such a long time to get back from that and to then move into my blackness in a really full way and to say like, no, I'm black, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like the song that that T. Uh, T. S. Madison's on. You might be fluorescent beige, but you black, right? Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and here I am, sit like a light, like a f-ing light bulb, and I'm like, exactly, right? Like, it's it's all I know, and it's all I want to know. Have you ever struggled with loving yourself as a queer person? No. <laughs> really? Oh my goodness, that was yeah. one of my biggest no. struggles. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, yes, when I was figuring it out, uh-huh. like I grew up in a deeply, deeply religious household. Um, like I said, my grandfather had his own church in Yoakum, Texas, oh. and it was a backwater church in a small town. And, you know, I read the Bible front to back. And there was a time in my life where you could see me walking around school carrying a Bible, like I was I was trying to be deeply religious because I believed what my grandfather preached. Mm-hmm. I believed in what I read. I believed in the songs and the hymns. And I, I, I was so enculturated in this black religiosity in the black church. So when I started to think that or understand myself as loving not girls and being attracted to boys, um, I was devastated. Like... I thought this cannot be happening to me. Like this is why me? Like I don't understand. And so during those I would say 3 years I tried absolutely everything to I prayed every night. I I read the Bible again and again and again. I was like maybe I can find the key in here to make this thing go away. And I don't remember what changed like I think it I think it was just my personality. I began to see the contradictions. I began to see that people, not my grandfather, but other pastors and preachers were commenting about things and kind of putting a hierarchy to sin. And I thought, wait a minute, I don't understand sin as being hierarchical. Like I understand sin to be sin mm-hmm. and you shouldn't do any of the sinful shit. Um, and so I began to see that hypocrisy and those contradictions. And I thought, this is my way out, right? Like, I got to go because this doesn't make sense. And so at 16, I kind of very deci- made a very decisive decision to leave the church. And I had to have a conversation with my dad about it. Like, I had to sit him down and say, Dad, I'm not going to church anymore. And it was one of the most difficult conversations I had. And I hadn't come out when I made that decision, right? Like, he didn't know that my reason for leaving the church was because I couldn't reconcile my sexuality and my faith. And it wasn't until a year later that I was like, Dad, I'm, I'm gay. Um, and so, yeah, so I struggled with, in those three years. But when I came out, that was it. I was yes. like, I'm never, ever looking back. Because my stepmom, when I did, came out, when I did come out, I, I laugh now, but at the time it, it felt quite macabre, but she started crying. And she said, it's not that you're gay. Like, I, I really, I, I love you. She's like, it's that the world is so cruel to gay people. And she just started crying. And she was like, I'm so scared for you. Yeah. And so I get goosebumps thinking about it. She's such a sweet woman. Oh. Um, yeah, she's nice. And I mean, it, uh, sorry, I'm getting emotional. Oh, my goodness. 
Because she was right, you know? Yes. Like, but I knew that, like, if I was going to go into the world, I had to own it 100%. Like, I had to believe that my gayness, that my queerness was amazing. And so I just never looked back. So, no, I've never been shameful of... I've never been out and shameful. Yeah. No, I could... And I'm so sorry that, like, you know you did even have to go through that and just like society in general. When I was already out, um, I didn't feel ashamed. But when I was thinking of coming out or like realizing I'm lesbian, I was like, oh my goodness, why me? Just like how you said. <laughs> and also it's more than just realizing that, okay, things are going to be different. It's realizing that the world is going to treat you different and are you strong enough to um, be happy and and find your happiness and your freedom and then go for your freedom while the world is trying to suck it out of you. That's what makes it so scary. I remember Truly. thinking, am I going to lose my friends and, and my family as well? Because there, there would be times where people would say something that was like homophobic, but sometimes people say stuff that's, that's homophobic and they don't realize that it is homophobic. <laughs> Listen, my organ, I, on my neck, I have tattooed queer, Q-U-A-R-E. And queer is queer of color queerness. Mm. Like it's for us. And it was put forward by E. Patrick Johnson in 2001 or 2002. And E. Patrick Johnson is like the fairy gay father of black queer theory in the academy. And this seminal essay he wrote in 2001 or 2002, I can't remember the exact year, was everything I know about queerness, I know from my grandmother. And in this essay, he says, my grandmother was technically homophobic. Like she, mm -hmm. was, she said things that we would class as homophobia, but she was the most loving, nurturing woman in my life. And she taught me everything I know about feminism, about queerness, about homophobia. Like, I learned that from her, through her. And so there is this thing that happens in black communities whereby structurally and societally and culturally, people look at black people as if we are the most homophobic people around and not as similarly homophobic to a, a homophobic society, right? Mm. And what they miss in all of that is that instead of us lamenting homophobia in our communities, we're learning from it. We're going, what can I learn here? What can I do here? How does this inform who I am in the world? And there's a, there's a way that I think queer black people metabolize and transform homophobia that other people can really learn from. Right. What helped you love your identity and find freedom during those times? I think what I struggle with is self-doubt. When I started Busy Being Black, it was at a very traumatic time in my life. And I thought, what right do I have to be doing this? Like, right. what right do I have to think that I can create this soft place for people to land? Like, what right do I have? Mm. That's gotten less and less over the years as I've acknowledged, received, owned, embraced the work that I'm doing. And I think that's the lesson in all of this, is that so often we think that we can't do it or we ought not do it, but we are doing it in the process. Yeah. We're already doing the thing, right? We're already doing the podcast or having the conversation or doing the mental calculus or doing the research or reading or asking questions. We're already in process of doing. And we have to 
recognize that we are already taking the action that we are saying we can't take. (laughs) And that's always for me, the the self-doubt emerges. And now I'm able to understand it as I really want to impress people. I really, really need to impress queer black people. I need them to know that the work I'm doing is for them. And if it, if it misses the mark, please tell me because y'all are the people I care about (laughs) most in the world. Um, and so I, I now I think I understand that self-doubt as helpful, right? I'm, I'm in a moment where I, something I really care about, I need to get it right. And that doubt I have is, is whether or not I can live up to, their, to the expectations I've placed um, on myself because I really need to be useful to other people. That is just something that I'm going to keep replaying in my mind when I make my content as well. <laughs> because, yeah, that is it. We are making this for the community. Like, it's it feels so great because it's like a part of me is like I'm making my content and providing my platform for myself, but also for a whole huge other reason because it is for the for the people and it is for the community and it is for people to learn and grow. And that is the power behind it. But is it also for you? Yeah, yeah, I feel like it is for me, definitely. Like, I feel like I learned so much from my platform because it kind of forces me to discover myself through history, through other people's experiences, and just through learning and just even hearing the feedback from other people makes me think of other things and also appreciate my own content. (laughs) I I cried the other day listening to Busy Being Black. I was like, this is so good. (laughs) Exactly. If I can add to that, mm-hmm. what you make me think of is that you and I do storytelling work, mm-hmm. right? We create space for people to come and tell us their stories. And what that requires is trust, particularly in the media climate that we live in. There aren't a lot of platforms that people feel comfortable to bring themselves in their fullness, to share their vulnerabilities, to share their joys, their hopes and their dreams, to share their learning. and. What you have to remember and what I remind myself all the time is that people are literally entrusting us. They're coming to the platform because they trust that they'll be safe, they'll be held, they'll be understood, they'll be heard. And so part of what I hear when I listen back to Busy Being Black is that trust. And that makes me proud. Like, I'm so glad that people trust me with their stories and they trust me to meet them where they are. And so I just want to offer that back to you, that I feel safe, I I trust you. And that's part of the work that you're doing is it's trust making. Yes. That's the way I say it. (laughs) What is a struggle that is not talked about enough? The first one that comes to mind for me, it's deeply personal, but it's uh, body dysmorphia. I don't know if I technically struggle from body dysmorphia, um, but I mean, who is it? What right do institutions have to legitimize what I'm feeling? But you know what I mean? I, I don't have like a diagnosis of body dysmorphia, but I do struggle with what I see, who I see in the mirror, how I present physically. Um, I do struggle with the objectification of me of my body of the evacuating of my intellect and my emotional life Mm. and the the way that people look at me sometimes and i feel like they they lick their teeth um it makes me feel deeply uncomfortable and it feels like a difficult thing to talk about and in a society in which people who look like me tend to be favored i read this incredible book called the delectable negro by vincent woodard and rest his soul. And he basically outlines in this book 
the cannibalistic and homophobic undertones and thrust of enslavement of anti-black racism Mm. and he really methodically um, charts the ways that black men's and black women's bodies are seen not just as commodities to be utilized for profit but are literally understood as things to consume right that and we all understand that every black person understands that in our bones we know when someone is looking at us as if they are going to eat us yeah and that's because that is the experience right that is how black people are looked at not just as things to be used but as things to eat to grab to hold to dominate to fuck to disregard Mm. and i think that I would love to be part of a conversation or to help facilitate a conversation about how we as black people understand our bodies and return to them and understand our beauty and our worth outside of the cannibalistic, acquisitive gaze of white people. How I as a queer black man might learn to prioritize how I feel about myself and not my sexual serviceability to someone else's desires. And I, I struggle with that, but I do feel like it's a complicated conversation to have um, in public spaces. Wow, I need to read that book. Oh my God, it is incredible. I feel that, but I've never dug deep into it. You know, when you're dating someone and it's like, I feel like I'm a fetish. Like, I don't I don't know if you're into me or, or you're into this fetish. And then you see that they have a pattern and then it's like, oh, but I've never... Yeah really thought so deep into it but i know when i do feel uncomfortable i need to read this book (laughs) i'm getting i'm getting goosebumps because vincent woodard's the delectable negro is the first time really that i ever had a language for a feeling i felt i i wrote um in an essay that when i was 18 i left home you know i graduated from high school and decided to go out into the world and, and be quote unquote independent and that I feel like I was absolutely ravaged by white men, like my trigger warning, sexual assault. My first sexual experience with another um, man was sexual assault. And that was, I literally stepped out the house and that happened. And it, it was just, it's all I've known of my sexuality is that I'm here for other people's desires when they want them, when they want it. And so when I read The Delectable Negro, I was like, oh my God, it was so affirming, right? It was like, right, so it's not me thinking I'm some hot shit, because I really don't. It's just me literally experiencing history. It's literally me experiencing how the world tells white people they can treat black bodies. If you want to show the world that you're sick of labels, then head to the stereotype shop at cutbycrystal.com shop, or head to my Instagram at DJ Crystal Lake. I actually loved creating these and I think they look pretty cool. So let me know if you like how they turned out as well. Now we're going to go much lighter and we're going to play okay. a game of Would You Rather. Are you ready? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yes. Would you rather have the ability to drag people to filth like Rihanna or have the ability to dance like Ciara? I feel like I can do both. 
And so... Okay. Okay, Josh. <laughs> I feel like I don't have to choose. <laughs> now, Sierra, I, I grew up in Atlanta. And so I have a deep and abiding adoration for Sierra because one of my earliest post-high school memories, we were at my friend Marcus's apartment because he was a little bit older. And we were literally learning one, two step before we went to... <laughs> the club with our fake IDs. And that was right when Sierra came out. So I, I, but I do feel like I could do both. I do feel like I'm very good at reading people for filth because it requires an, a wit and, and an intellect that I have. So Let's both. Go. <laughs> I would choose to read people to filth because yeah. I think I just get mad. And then after I'm just like, oh, I could have dragged them. But it comes after and I'm like, oh. I do love a read because it requires the the best reads are culturally specific and they tear people down and they let you know that you they let it lets them know that you are not to be fucked with. I yeah. I did give an excellent read by email to someone the other day and I actually shared it on Instagram because I was like that's how you do it. I said if you want to if you want to read me, please send one of your smarter soldiers because <laughs> I'm not the one. I will yes. mop the floor with you. <laughs> <laughs> would you rather have a weekend trip with Beyonce or a weekend trip Beyonce. with Madonna? I know, I feel like Beyonce. that one was so obvious. Listen, but also, I dislike Madonna. I cannot stand her. I cannot stand her. I think her of her as a culturally thieving, parasitic whiteness. I honestly can't stand her. I can't. And there we go. The read. <laughs> she Just is. you dragging Listen, people to film. But I remember I got into a really heated argument with an ex-boyfriend about it. He, white guy. Absolutely adores Madonna. And I was talking to him about Vogue, right? Like, it's a song. It's a bop. We're all going to dance to it. Like, I'm, music moves, right? So I'm not saying I've never danced to Vogue and don't think it's an amazing song. I just don't like Madonna. And I don't like Madonna because she capitalizes <laughs> on black culture and black queer culture specifically and she literally set a template for how it's done. His counter argument was that she intervened in the AIDS crisis. He inclu she included AIDS information, AIDS awareness information in her album cover, whatever. I said, that's the bare minimum she could have done considering she was already sucking the blood of the community mm. and that she was already employing and not paying these people who were supporting her. So this idea that she should be exalted as a wealthy white woman who was literally wealthy because of what she stole drives me so nuts. And so when Beyonce did the Vogue cover, and I, my heart sank because I was like, no, not Madonna. Like, you're so pure, Beyonce, not Madonna. But when I heard when I heard the song and Beyonce names all the people who ought to have been named in the first place, that felt like a sense of justice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually so happy that I chose Beyonce and Madonna now because you just took it so deep. Would you rather live in the most safe and successful gay area? That means like no hate crimes, nothing, you know? Whatever or, the other option is. Or the most safe and successful black area. Oh, shit. I spoke too soon. Ah! Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Okay, so you know why this is such a good one. Damn it. You've got me at the intersection of things I really care about. Safe and successful gay area. Just last week... Um, ben Hunt at Vice News released a report about racism in Manchester's gay village. What that makes me think of 
is the way that gay villages in the quote-unquote West, as we understand them in places like the U.S. and the U.K., were never built to accommodate queer black people. In fact, these spaces, these villages, could only happen because queer black people, trans people, the homeless, young people were ushered and pushed out of these spaces so that wealthy white gays could come in. So when we understand a gay space as safe and successful, it necessarily means white, which is why I said whatever the other option is. But of course, when you bring in safe and successful black areas, we also can't forget that safe and successful um, for blackness also requires a respectability politics. It also requires an adherence to white standards of success, of propriety, of prudence, of, of all these things that that don't allow for blackness in its fullness and its, its, in its expressiveness to appear and to thrive and to survive. So I would choose neither. I don't want to be in any of these spaces that don't allow for the complicated, messy, deserving and worthy parts of our communities to not only exist separately, but to be successful together. Whoa, answer. I made some mistakes when I was younger and I kept hearing this thing, you should have known better. And I thought, why? Why am I as a black person just naturally, inherently, preternaturally better than other people? Mm. Why am I more socially aware than other people? Why am I especially inured to white supremacy? Like, what is it? Like, what, what special thing do I have that means I wouldn't adopt the dominant culture's values? Right. And that's what we see in safe and successful blackness. We see, because you have to, right? Like whiteness and white supremacy and capitalism, which is always a racial capitalism, require an allegiance. Someone, namely someone that we know and that we identify with, must be jettisoned, must be extracted from in order for us to have that safety and success. That is so true. And black people just aren't immune to that. Yeah, because I remember growing up, there's this place, I'm pretty sure this is the name, but Baldwin Hills. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I was always like, wow, all these like rich black people or like black people getting money are all here like that. I've never seen something like that. And I was like, if I make it, I want to go to a, um, a rich black neighborhood. But the way you broke that down, it just makes me think like, yo, I can live anywhere. And if I just surround myself with the people that I feel like should be in my life that are aligned with me, I'm gonna love living anywhere. <laughs> just as long as That's I'm right. not in like this extremely racist ass community, but I wouldn't know better. I also think it's important that black people are allowed to do what we want. Like, I just don't think that every single black person should needs to be an activist or needs to be an exemplar of the black community. That's respectability politics. Um, I think that if black people want to go and work in Wall Street, they ought to be able to, and for the rest of us to mind our business. We do live in a world that requires black people to think, I hope, more expansively than just about our own survival. Mm. But, you know, it's just not fair to, to suggest that all black people ought to be directed this way or oriented in this way. Um, and so part of what I think we have to do better as humans, never mind as marginalized people, but we all have to be better at holding contradictory ideas, concepts, feelings together, right? Like we have to be able to create space within ourselves. I'm really inspired by the quote from Reverend Angel Kyoto that love is space. It's, 
it's making ourselves spacious so that people can show up as they are. And she says that doesn't mean that we don't hope that things are different, but that we are in acceptance of how things are so that we can move together towards changing them. I believe all black people should be happy and that we should be able to explore what Kevin Kwashi calls our wild and voluptuous interior lives. And I'm going to keep working for that. I just don't expect every other black person in the world to do the same. They they shouldn't need to. What made you create Busy Being Black? Busy Being Black emerged at a really difficult time in my life. I made mistakes very publicly and I was surrounded by queer black elders and age mates who kind of formed a wall around me and they called me in and they took me for dinner and made me food and gave me wine and imparted their wisdom and I was having these conversations with people and I was like people need to hear this like it it took me being at my lowest to hear the wisdom that the community has collected has earned I thought no that can't be right and so I thought, okay, well, maybe I can create something that where this wisdom can be shared widely and we don't have to wait until people are broken or bruised or hurt or in pain. Maybe we can just keep talking and talk loudly and louder about what it means to live and thrive at the intersection of queerness and blackness. And so that's that was the thrust of Busy. But it has since become something else also connected to that. For me, it's been a hugely healing, cathartic, energizing, invigorating, vitalizing like project. It's my heart work, right? It's made me confident. It's made me trust myself. It's made me trust the way I think, the way I speak. It's made me think I can do absolutely anything. It's helped me think I can change the world. And yeah. I, I just feel so tremendously grateful that in, a, in the moment when I was at my lowest, that people gave me a way out, a way up. And so that's what Busy Being Black is. It's a, wow. it's, it's the soft place that people created for me. Yeah, that is so true. And you are changing the world and it's so beautiful. It's just amazing how many people you touch. You are either at the studio or, or doing the work behind the scenes. So you never actually get to see every single person that is right. listening to this but it's making a huge impact. Like even when I saw you at UK Black Pride, I had a little fangirl moment because I was like, (laughs) oh my goodness, like. I was so flattered. I was like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and you're such an inspiration. And even, even with things like that, that could inspire someone else to make a whole new project for themselves that inspires other people as well. Or it could just be somebody just chilling at home that just feels better about their day, but the impact is so huge and it's so beautiful and so powerful. Thank you for saying that. When I meet people like you, who I, I this energy you give off, it it's so, it fills me up like to the fucking brim and yes. I know I'm going in the right direction. And I think that's a beautiful thing about all of us, right? Not just you and I who've created platforms, but when each of us is moving in the direction of our spirit, when we're listening to what the universe is telling us, when we're listening to ourselves, right? When we're listening to that little voice inside that says, go here, do this, say this, don't do that. We literally vibrate. James Baldwin has an article in The Village Voice called 
go the way your blood beats. Mm. <laughs> it's just beautiful. Like, it's just a beautiful way to think about it. Go the way your blood beats. Follow your heart. Do the yeah. stuff that lights you up. Lucky for us, this stuff lights us up. I feel like we it were does. <laughs> like born leaders, good with words, and we're using our skills for the good. <laughs> yeah, and to bring people along. This is a vulnerability piece as well, right? Like we learn as black people that we have to either be one dimensional or that only certain parts of ourselves are okay in certain spaces and we always have to be on guard. Like, who do I need to be in this space? Mm. I think what we offer together and what other people offer with their work and their art and their creativity is, okay, well, what happens if you show up as you are? What happens if all of you's here? And I think the more that we show up together in these spaces and the more we hold each other and the more people see themselves affirmed as full, complicated, complex, messy, erroneous, but trying people, like the more they learn too that it's okay to be the fullness. It's okay yeah. to show up as, as all of it. There aren't parts of yourself you need to hide from me. Um, I, I got you, right? Yeah. Are there any projects that you're working on now? I can't say, but I love that. I've always wanted to be able to say that. <laughs> you know, like when a celebrity is on like a talk show, I'm like, I can't tell you that, but I've always wanted to be able to say that and I can actually say that. What I will say is, can I share with you my vision for Busy? Yes. I have this vision in my head. Picture it. There's an aerial shot of the Amazon moving okay. slowly in. The sun is lowering in the sky. As you get closer to the trees, you see a transparent platform floating. I don't know how, but it's floating above the trees. And you see two people, one person dressed in neon pink, one person dressed in fluorescent yellow. And the sun, the sky behind is like indigo, blue, purple, orange, as because the sun is setting. Wow, this and is this so And this 360 right now. camera is going around and capturing this beautiful conversation as the sun sets over the Amazon. Like I want, it's a vision I have in my head. I want queer black people to know that when they come to Busy Being Black, they are going to be ensorcelled. They are going to be enchanted. They are going to see themselves, their experiences, their lives reflected back to them with such brilliance and such beauty that they are going to know. They're, they're never, ever going to doubt again their place in the world or that they deserve to be here. And so my goal is to just to support the kind of um, what has begun as an audio project and offering is to kind of make it a 360 experience for people in our communities and the people I love. I can't wait to see what you <laughs> You'll have see coming. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because once I close my eyes and picture me floating in the Amazon, thank you, right? Sun, the sunset. Oh my! I said to my friend yesterday, I said I got no idea how you float a trans transparent circular platform over the amazon but i bet there's an engineer who knows how to do that and there i'm gonna find that person there was an engineer that made beyonce's horse transparent so <laughs> listen i love this quote from tony morrison i just want to share it with you and with listeners because i just think it's an important reminder for all of us sometimes you don't survive whole you just survive in part but the grandeur of life is the attempt. It's not about a solution. It's about being as fearless as one can, behaving as beautifully as one can, 
under completely impossible circumstances. It's that that makes life elegant. Keep making the attempt. It is such a beautiful attempt. 100%. That actually flows into my next question. What advice would you give a person who is struggling with their identity? I guess it's always difficult to give advice um, because everyone's experience is so unique. So what I will do is I'll use my own experience and maybe that resonates with someone else. This builds on go the way your blood beats. For so long, I ran away from myself, right? I tried to be someone else. I tried to abide by other people's rules. And in doing so, I had to cut off parts of myself that were telling me to do something differently, right? And that ignoring of ourselves, and you know, like you, when you have a gut feeling, that's not something else. That's you. you that's yeah. the thing you can trust. Like no one else can inform a gut feeling except you. And I think that we have to learn how to trust that. And I've been getting better at trusting that. You know, I've said before, I think my intellect is a sword. It, it is the thing that protects me. It is the thing that invigorates me. It, 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 I'm emotionally stimulated by it. I'm, I'm affirmed by my intellect. But I have to nurture it, right? And I have to not be afraid to own it. And so my pursuit into black queer theory and into magical realism in particular, those two have... I get emotional just thinking about it, like the way my life has lit up since I read 100 Years of Solitude and The House of the Spirits and Black Queer Studies and Towards a Gay Communism and, you know, like, I'm smiling, I can't stop smiling, like I just, these, these books for me have validated me, have affirmed me, have given me the tools I need to talk about and therefore navigate the world. And so I think that's my advice. Like, what is it that lights you up? Like, you know what it is. I have very visceral, physical reactions to intellectual and spiritual stimuli. So if someone says something and I get goosebumps, I go, aha, pay attention to what they just said because it's my body indicating that someone has said something that something beyond my brain understands. And I have to revisit that, I have to learn more. And when I do that, I learn something fascinating, enchanting, curious, intellectual. I, you know, it, it, it excites me so much. And everyone has that. Everyone has the thing that lights them up. So go towards that, do that, find out what that is. I got so much from this, you know, and I, <laughs> I wasn't even expecting all of that, but I'm so grateful for this interview right now. I'm grateful for you. I, like I said, you know, creating spaces where people can show up and express themselves is it's it's noble work. And I'm so glad you invited me to be part of yours. Everyone, please check out Busy Being Black it is one of my favorite podcasts out there. And I'm not just saying that. So that's why I was so excited <laughs> when you agreed to this. I know you're listening to this like, damn, I got a lot from this interview. Imagine the platform. So just go. Imagine there. 100 episodes of this. Exactly. <laughs> you're like, I do this. I do this. It's my thing. We, you just yeah. got a little bit of a sample just now. <laughs> <laughs> what we would call an amuse-bouche. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> in this episode, we showed that self-love and self-acceptance plays a huge role in feeling free and happy, especially if you're Black or queer. We also learned that knowledge is power. Make sure you learn about yourself and your culture. If you enjoyed this show, please give it a rating and review.
It tells the algorithm to boost this podcast. And trust me, there are so many people that need to hear these discussions. So it would mean a lot if you do this to support the community and this podcast. Don't miss out on the next episode where I'm covering the stereotype of loud, whiny women and the dark history of why that exists. Until then, this was DJ Crystal Lake. And remember, you are a person, not a label. I'll see you in the next one.